Christine. And I'm Alan. We'd like to thank you for tuning in to our discussion this week. Our hope is that we'll share some information that you will find helpful. So now we invite you to join us as we together listen listen for for the the word. word. Hi, everybody. Welcome to our podcast today. Today we are in the book of Luke, and um, we are headed actually um, back in it, where we're heading to this visit of um, uh, Jesus to the Samaritan village, um, this where he's heading towards Jerusalem. So we're, we're heading to a kind of a different time period, but I think we're still going to talk about Luke that we've kind of been in this year. And so it's going gonna, it's gonna to help fill in some of those gaps as we kind of move into our kind of ordinary time. Um, so this is Luke 9, verses 51 through 62. Yeah, thanks, Christy. And today's gospel lesson from Luke does take us back into territory that's unique in Luke's gospel. Um, And really what we're going to see over the course of the next many weeks is that um, Luke's gospel shifts gears from reporting the Galilean ministry to basically he's making his way toward Jerusalem. And in the passage for today, he encounters resistance in a Samaritan village, and he encounters three would-be disciples who underestimate the cost of following him. And these, both of these um, episodes really relate to some themes that, were, that are going to be found throughout this section of Luke's gospel. And so basically our reading for today opens this whole new section of Luke's gospel that's known as the journey to Jerusalem. Mm-hmm. Now, you know, tr- travel logs were um, a feature of ancient literature, um, and Luke includes a travel log of Paul's last journey sure. to yeah. Jerusalem. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is a little different from a normal travel log in that there really is no um, spelling out of the itinerary, the stops on the way. It's That part's left kind of vague because the focus in Luke's travel narrative here is on the destination, and the destination is Jerusalem. And that remains the focus throughout mm-hmm. um, of this whole section of Luke's gospel. And I think part of the reason for that is because um, one of the one of the questions that Luke is dealing with here is making clear who Jesus is. And part of the answer to that is Jesus is the one who is going to Jerusalem and going to be rejected and he's going to die and he's going to rise again. So, um, you know, um, this is a whole new section and we're going to be walking through this section for weeks. And, um, you know, basically in chapter nine, Jesus ministry in Galilee actually reaches a high point with the focus of attention on Jesus identity and mission and on the nature of discipleship. And then this journey is going to continue for nearly 10 chapters. Wow. uh, So there's a lot here. Yeah. 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 Now this journey, you know, (laughs) So I found, and we'll talk with Calvin later, I mean, some of this material, though, in today's is we do see in Matthew, for example. So it's kind of like this whole new vision of Luke, and yet we're we're using things that these stories before. So I guess just maybe lay that up for us a little bit. Yeah, so the journey to Jerusalem not only recounts certain episodes of Jesus' ministry, but also, and I think this is probably one of the main points of the journey narrative, is that it recounts a great deal of Jesus' teachings, especially related to the nature of discipleship. And many of the sayings collected in Matthew's Sermon on the Mount Mm -hmm. are found scattered throughout this section of Luke's gospel. Now, as I've mentioned before, what we also find in this section of Luke's gospel are some 15 parables that are only found in Luke's gospel. They're not in Matthew or Mark. They're not in John. They're only found in Luke's gospel. And mm-hmm. as I've mentioned before, they include some of the most familiar. Our, fa- um, our favorites. Yeah, yeah, the good Samaritan, the rich fool, mm-hmm. the prodigal son, the rich man and Lazarus, the widow and the unjust judge, the Pharisee and the tax collector. And I'm going to... Interspersed here, just briefly. I'm using the prodigal son with my young adults, and my young adults aren't terribly Bible literate, but they know the prodigal son. Yeah, I mean, well, I said that. Oh, or the good Samaritan. I mean, oh, I'm, everyone knows right, that everybody one, right? knows, At least they know a, that there is some such a thing. They know that there it's, is a good Samaritan. It's become kind of, kind of a part of a, the vernacular, yeah. the limited vernacular. Well, they think of, it's somebody that goes around in an RV and has a sticker on the back mm-hmm. and they help people on the side of the it, road. Exactly. But, <laughs> but yeah, it, in that respect, it's become part of our, our limited, but, but common vernacular of what yeah. the, what the, yeah. what's taught. Yeah. And it's not the worst way to 
even in that, no, <laughs> even though it's right. a misunderstanding, right. perhaps it still is an it still is an entry level. Well, and what we're going to see here is that the themes of these parables in this section really carry on the mm-hmm. edgy feel that we've already encountered with Luke's gospel, especially early on. Mm-hmm. Um, the great reversal, the coming crisis, the cost of discipleship, warnings against the dangers of the, of wealth, and to some extent against the influence of wealthy Jewish mm-hmm. religious leaders. So that's, this is great background, um, and so now here we are today. Yeah, yeah. So the reading for today then opens this whole new section of Luke's gospel, and it begins with the notice that when the days drew, for him, drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem, mm-hmm. Luke 9.51. Now, I find it interesting that Luke indicates that the turning point in Jesus' ministry happened when the days drew near for him to be taken up. And I see this as a reference to Jesus' ascension. Mm-hmm. The word is analempsis, and the, the noun form is found on only here in the New Testament, but the verb form is found as a reference to Jesus' ascension in Acts chapter 1, verse 2, verse 11, verse 22, mm-hmm. and especially in 1 Timothy 3.16, something we may all be familiar with. Without any doubt, the mystery of godliness is great. He was revealed in flesh, vindicated in the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among Gentiles, believed throughout the world, taken up. In glory, and mm-hmm. there is the the verb form taken up mm-hmm, or mm-hmm. Okay. ascended. Yep. Yeah. Yep. So, so this was the turning point, and and this is the turning point in Luke's gospel. And we've seen, you know, in other gospels, there are certain turning points, right? Mm-hmm. Um, well, I think this goes along then with Luke's account of the transfiguration, which is a part of this same chapter, right? Right. Um, that according to which, you know, Jesus was discussing with Moses and Elijah his departure, which he was about to accomplish mm-hmm. at Jerusalem. And we mentioned before when we looked at the transfiguration that the Greek word for departure is exodon. And as I mentioned earlier, um, Luke connects the transfiguration with the cross and also by implication as well with the resurrection. But I think I would say now in light of this statement in Luke 9.51 about the ascension of Jesus that I should have followed Francois Bavon in recognizing that Jesus' departure in the, in the uh, transfiguration probably is also referring to Jesus' ascension. And wow, yeah. Yeah, that's brilliant. <laughs> yeah, and I, I, I hope everyone's listening. So this, this is again, very I, rich. I, this is very rich. Well, again, I think the whole point of this is just to real re- point out. Jerusalem is significant in Luke's yep. theology. Uh, yes, yes, it's the place where Jesus must go. Right. And these things are all going to happen there. His death is going to happen there. Right. His resurrection is going to happen there. His ascension is going to exactly, happen. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And I think people, uh, again, because of our own nature to to um to do what calvin does and then harmonize these we sometimes forget about the as we are now learning how to pull these uniquely apart that jerusalem is 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 very important yep. yeah for luke definitely for luke mm-hmm. so um this whole again this whole set his face towards it right um is i mean it's a, it's just odd in, in English. So sure, tell us about is. this. Yeah, and and Luke says that as a result of this turning point, then that Jesus set his face to go to Jerusalem, and and um, Lo and Nida in their Greek English lexicon, according to semantic domains, note that this is a Semitic idiom. You can find it in the Hebrew Bible in Jeremiah and Ezekiel, and it really means to fix one's face, mm-hmm. or, or literally, or or it means that Jesus had made a decision, and the emphasis is this was his final decision. Right. And so they suggest a translation to decide firmly, to resolve, to make up what's my, one's mind definitely. And of course, you know, we've seen already in the Passion Predictions, in all three Gospels, all three Synoptic Gospels, that Jesus knows that he must go to Jerusalem Mm -hmm. to face rejection and ultimately death. He says that. That's the way he words Mm -hmm. his Passion Predictions in all three Gospels. The Son of Man must, you know, Mm -hmm. go and die and, and be raised again. And so he's aware of this, but here I think it's interesting that we have an expression of agency on Jesus' part in that he makes the firm decision to face all of that rejection and death mm-hmm. and what yes, follows. Yes, right? yes, yes. And, and, you know, the only thing I think similar that I, that I can recall in the gospel tradition is the statement in John ten eighteen where Jesus speaks of his authority to lay down his life and take it up again. Yeah, yeah. And, and so uh, we see that same kind of agency here. He's making yeah. a firm decision right, to right. go to Jerusalem. 
I think in our human experience, we have situations where we know there's things that will happen, they will come to pass. And then there's when you are resolute about that you are going to be, that you're taking that. It's, 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 it's more of a shift from this is, this is the direction I'm going to go and nope, this is this I bought into. Right. I, 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 I'm, I'm trying to make that, that narrow difference, but I, I do think it is No, a I think it's good. Right? I mean, right? yeah, he, this is not just an inevitability. He is right. embracing right. this destiny. I, I, suppose, I suppose in a sense it's the human Jesus making that human Mm-hmm. human choice even though mm-hmm. he knew this was his his trajectory before it's not now it's now it's this and this is what i have to do this is well and and to some extent then the the this whole section you know the the travel the narr- the journey to jerusalem is going to function a little bit like the farewell discourses in john's gospel yeah. in that jesus is is going to really pull out all the stops in terms of the cost of discipleship and what it means to follow him uh, and and so he's really trying to prepare not only the 12, but all disciples. Yeah. In Luke's gospel, we have this kind of, it's not just the 12, it's any who would follow him in yeah. Luke's gospel. And so uh, Jesus is really laying it all on the line in terms of what it means to follow him. Well, okay, I might be going too far here, but in a way, as I'm thinking about this, it's almost like the human Jesus and his discipleship right and mm-hmm. and, and following with, with god following god right yeah. and yeah. and and that agency that is that human agency of his fully human nature mm-hmm. even though the other the full god nature of him is obviously automatically going there yeah. so it it kind of is like and i too have this cost right and you have this cost to follow right. me right well, anyway ideas um yeah, sure. <laughs> Sure. All right, go go on. Go so on. then, this—that's just the introductory statement, mm-hmm. and it leads to an episode that's found only in Luke's gospel. Jesus goes through Samaria and faces rejection there in Luke nine fifty-two mm-hmm. to fifty-six. Now, I think it's important to note that Matthew and Mark, their their description of Jesus' journey to Jerusalem is a little bit hard to understand at. at in terms of how it's worded, but it does seem, they do both seem to indicate that Jesus avoided Samaria on his way from Galilee mm-hmm, to Jerusalem. Mm-hmm. He went through the Transjordan. He went through right, the right. region across the Galilee, on the other side of the Galilee. Right. And actually, this was kind of standard, you know, the, uh, Jewish pilgrims from right. Galilee would avoid Samaria. They would cross they would. the Jordan River yeah. and they would yeah. travel down the Transjordan. You know, I think it reflects that really hatred yeah. between these two yeah. groups. Yeah. That it, it, it makes sense. It's like what worst of two evils. Oh my gosh, we don't want to deal with the Samaritans. So only Luke reports this episode and only in Luke's gospel does Jesus pass through Samaria at any time in his ministry, let alone on his way to Jerusalem. Now, of course, that's among the synoptic gospels. We do see in John's gospel that that he does have this encounter with right. the woman at the well in John chapter four, and he does seem to have a ministry there. It applies that he stays there a day, like a couple of days, and, and teaches mm-hmm. them. So, but but in the synoptic gospels, this is unique. And so Luke tells us that Jesus sent messengers ahead of him, and literally the phrase is, before his face. And I think that's important because mm. the word face, We're he set his face set his before, face his, before face. his face. It gets repeated in this, Interesting. In this passage. Interesting. Oh, yes. And so he sent his messengers but literally before his face to a village of the Samaritans to prepare for his arrival. Now, we don't know where this place was, and the fact that it was simply called, called a village or a kome, kome suggests that it was somewhere out of the way. Hmm. Uh, and it seems likely, you know, you think, well, what were they going to, how were they going to prepare? Well, they were going to find a place for them to stay and food to eat. But Luke tells us that they did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. Mm-hmm. Now, I'm not really fond of this uh, particular translation of, of verse 53 in the new RSV because it reads as if it's, it were the same Greek construction as in 951. But it's a totally different construction here. Literally, his face was going to Jerusalem. Ta prosopon autu ein paruamanon ais Jerusalem. And the NIV translate, 
translates it simply, he was heading for Jerusalem. Which is different because of getting in this face right. piece again, like, which I think is really significant. And we just talked about the significance mm-hmm. of that determination. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and you could really debate. I mean, was it, was it that they rejected him because he was so determined to go to Jerusalem? Was it just simply the fact that he was going to Jerusalem that, it was, that, that, that offended them? Um, it's hard to say. And I don't know that it makes a huge difference, but because both translations indicate that it was the fact that his destination was Jerusalem that caused them not to receive or welcome him. But I prefer that the translation do a better job of reflecting the subtle nuance of language in the original text. I think that's, that's a re I think it's a really important one that we would miss. Yeah. Um, if we didn't do a Greek work and you could, you could easily overemphasize the, the fact that Jesus set his face toward Jerusalem in light of the fact that the NRSV repeats it here in this verse. Mm -hmm. And, I'm I'm not sh- you know the way the wording is I'm not sure that that's the right way to handle it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Okay. And now so so you know we have this we have this whole story then and and you know you mentioned earlier when we were preparing why do we have this whole episode you know it seems like the two episodes are unrelated you know yes, this yes. rejection in samaria and right. and the would be disciples and to some extent some have suggested well maybe this recalls jesus rejection at nazareth so jesus is rejected by the samaritans just as he's rejected yeah, by yeah. his own home Right. crowd in Nazareth. Right. But there's also a sense in which it may prepare for what Jesus is going to say in Luke 9, 58, that the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. So then Luke tells us that when his disciples, James and John, saw this, they said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them? <laughs> and unless you're, unless you're a really good student of the, of the Hebrew Bible, you might be wondering, where in the world did yes. they come up yes. with that? It is. It does seem... It seems very abrupt if you're not familiar with that at all. Well, and it, you know, the 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 episode is kind of, um, it's not that well known of an episode. Actually, mm-hmm. it's from, it's it's from an episode in the life of Elijah in Second Kings chapter one. Ahaziah, the king of Israel, how many people know who Ahaziah exact, was, yeah. right? Um, had fallen, and he is said to have sent messengers to acquire, inquire of Beelzebub, the god of Ekron, whether I shall recover from this inj- injury. So, I mean, this is a time when you've got the divided kingdom, and right. and if the kings do what is right in the sight of the Lord, the people follow right. the Lord. If the kings do what is evil in sight of the Lord, the people go astray. And, you know, Ahaziah obviously was was one who did not do what was right in the sight of the Lord because he's inquiring of, a, of an idol, right, you know, right. about his, his fate. Uh, but Elijah met the messengers on the road and turned them back with a word from the Lord that because Ahaziah had sent to inquire from a foreign god, he would not leave his bed. And so Ahaziah sent a company of soldiers to bring Elijah to him, and Elijah responded to them, if I'm a man of God, let fire come down from heaven and consume you and your men. And that's what happened. Exactly. And then he did this also with a second company. And when Ahaziah sent a third company, the commander asked Elijah to spare their lives, and he went with them and delivered the original message from the Lord to Ahaziah. So that's, you know, it's kind of a strange and kind of esoteric story. And, 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 you know, I think it's important to note, Ahaziah ruled over Israel, and the capital of Israel was Samaria. Right. So there's a there's a link there, but in the context of the life of Elijah and Elisha, by the way, there are violent actions like this that seem to defend the prophet's honor as a man of God against those who treat him who don't treat him with the proper respect. Although you know, I would say the image of God this implies is really quite offensive yeah, to me. It, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> So perhaps this, along with the obvious association with Samaria, is why this situation with Jesus and the Samaritans prompted James and John to presume that they could and should do the same. Right, (laughs) right, yes. But Luke simply tells us that Jesus turned and rebuked them in verse 55. And I think we could say because Jesus was not Elijah, basically. Right. Jesus' ministry was very different from Elijah's. Right. I mean, can you imagine Jesus calling down fire on anyone? That just makes no sense. Well, and, and Calvin will address this as well so this is you know this didn't get by calvin's careful eye he was like this is what this reference is and i'll talk a little more about that later but um yeah it basically said what you said jesus isn't elijah this is not the spirit of jesus ministry so luke concludes concludes the episode by saying that they went on to another village presumably another samaritan village and one that was more hospitable right and then we have a whole shift 
and we have a whole second episode um, that, um, in fact, Calvin will have this in completely different places in his analyses because, <laughs> remember, we're harmonizing. So, right. um, But this does come next in, in, in Luke, and this is this um, recounting of the actions of these would-be disciples. Right. Right. And they'll be familiar as we get into them here. Yeah. So now, and this episode in Luke's gospel does have a parallel of sorts in Matthew 8, 18 through 22. But the parallel is not precise because this episode clearly takes place after Jesus' Galilean ministry has ended in Luke. But in Matthew, it's placed in connection with events reported at the very beginning Mm -hmm, of Jesus' mm -hmm. ministry. And furthermore, Matthew only speaks of two would-be disciples, while Luke has three. And also, the first one to approach Jesus is said to have been a scribe or a Torah scholar in Matthew. And this may reflect a subtle theme in Matthew, whereby he seeks to indicate that some of the Jewish religious leaders could and actually did follow Mm -hmm. Jesus. And indeed, some New Testament scholars think that Matthew himself may have been a Christian scribe based on a statement in Matthew Mm. 13, 52. Matthew 13 is is the big parables chapter where he starts, where Jesus starts with the parable of the sower, and he tells many other parables. And so toward the end of it, then Jesus says, every scribe who has become a disciple in the kingdom of heaven is like the master of a household who brings out of his treasure what is new and what is old which that's again this is only found in matthew's gospel this so is really interesting this is something yeah, unique. Yeah. Huh. and and so some people speculate right. i mean all we can do is speculate but some people speculate that that matthew is a that's a self-reference to oh, matthew yeah. as the author of the gospel yeah well and of course that's unique to matthew but not so much to luke yeah now i do want to say though again as i've mentioned several times this is a phenomenon in the Synoptic Gospels. Despite the fact that there are differences in the way Matthew and Luke narrate this episode, Jesus' words are preserved in both Gospels yeah, with word-for-word agreement. Which is agreement. really, really cool. Yeah. So yeah. this shows, and this doesn't always happen, but there are a lot of times when you can see you know, this emphasis on preserving the words of Jesus word-for-word intact. It's amazing. <laughs> it truly is. So how does how does Luke set this up? So then Luke, um, in Luke's version of the story, he basically says that as they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. So here, Matthew's scribe is just a nameless, faceless someone. Right, right. We're, I mean, clearly not one of the 12 because they've already... Follow Jesus, right? Right, right. So this person's identity really isn't important, apparently, in Luke, because what's important is to emphasize the cost of discipleship. Mm -hmm. So Jesus answers him, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head, in verse 58. Mm-hmm. Now, again, I would say the intent of this response, which may seem a little bit harsh on Jesus' part, was to lead this person to think about what the bold declaration, I will follow you wherever you go, right? what that would truly mean. And, and it really kind of suggests that this would-be disciple did not sufficiently appreciate what it would cost to follow mm-hmm. Jesus. And I think we can say there are many people who don't sufficiently I, appreciate absolutely. the cost of following absolutely. Jesus. Absolutely. Yeah, 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 yeah. And so that's the first guy. There's the second guy. Or girl. We don't know. So there's no indication, not even with the the endings or anything. Let me double check that right quick. Yeah, the pronouns pronouns are in the masculine gender. Okay, okay. So I suppose... It, we don't we don't know it, we've seen in, in just the way the bible's written it could be either right. but it's, pro- it's probably a guy probably. since most of them are are but okay so that there's a second second guy um and uh what goes on here so the, the second would-be disciple is called by jesus himself and using the same words with which he called the 12 follow me and this would be responded lord first let me go and bury my father Now, you know, that seems like a reasonable request. Mm -hmm. And in fact, the obligation to see to the proper burial of parents was part of the fulfilling the commandment to honor your father and mother and was said to override all other obligations of Jewish law. So this was something very sacred among Jewish people. But Jesus responded in a way that seems, again, really quite harsh. Let the dead bury their own dead, but as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. And, you know, there's been some discussion about, well, how do the dead bury their own dead? Is it the spiritually dead burying the physically dead? I think, I think that almost um, 
makes the statement die the death of too many qualifications. You know, mm-hmm. I think we just leave it as it is because it's it's meant to be almost a slap in the face. Let right. the dead bury their own dead. Yeah. And 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 you know, I, I think the point of this is that the commitment to seek first God's kingdom that is inherent in the decision to follow Jesus outweighs all other priorities, even. And this is the this is the emphasis here. Even the most sacred family duties, mm-hmm, that mm-hmm. that you know, proclaiming the kingdom, it has much has more urgency and more priority for those who will follow Jesus. Mm. Yeah. Okay. And which is huge. And then there's a third disciple. Yep. So the final encounter with a third be with a would be disciple is only found in Luke's gospel. Matthew doesn't have this one. Another said, "I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home." And again, that seems like a reasonable request as we go back to the Elijah and Elisha narratives. When Elijah found Elisha in a field plowing, he he allowed Elisha to say goodbye to his parents when he chose him to be his disciple. But Jesus will have nothing of the sort. Uh, Echoing the incident, perhaps with Elisha, he says, no one who puts a hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. So again, the idea, you know, is that that the commitment to follow Jesus uh, brings along with it uh, really an irrevocable commitment to serving the kingdom right, of God. Right, right, right. Now, you know, perhaps this would-be disciple was looking for some kind of recognition. Maybe there's something else behind it. Right. But I think, again, that sort of makes the statement die the death of too many qualifications. I right. think we should leave the hardness of the saying in place because it's meant to challenge us with what it means to commit yeah. ourselves to I, follow yeah, Jesus. Yeah, that's fair. That's fair. Yeah. Um, okay, so, um, I, I mean, yeah, I, I think there's a tendency with, with these to want to be take them very, very literally. I don't, I don't think that's the intention. Mm-hmm. Um, do you? I mean, no, I mean, I think the point of this is, is again, it emphasizes the cost of discipleship, mm-hmm. you know. And one of the things I find interesting is that we're not told whether any of these would-be disciples decided to follow Jesus. Right. And so the open-ended nature of this episode, along with the fact that all three are nameless, suggests that the point is to emphasize the cost of mm-hmm. discipleship, not just for those who were thinking of following Jesus in his day, but also for those in Luke's community who were thinking of following Jesus, and those in any day, including our day, Mm -hmm. who are contemplating this decision. And I think what is clear and what we're going to find as a consistent theme throughout um, the parables of of this section of Luke's gospel is that following Jesus means that the kingdom of God takes priority over everything else in your Mm -hmm. life. It leads to a complete reorientation, not only of behavioral norms, we saw the Sermon on the Plain in Luke's right. Gospel before, but also even kinship ties. Yeah. What is, you know, because follow, the commitment to following Jesus redefines one's family in, right. a, in a sense. Right, yeah. right. Yeah. So, uh, I mean, I, I think there's a lot that we just went through. I think we went through these two separate episodes. I think we have, are having to really think about Luke and Luke's unique situation. And then I think we have to think about these really tough these tough three disciples. I mean, I think this is hard to listen to and hear, but I really like how I really like how we've put it into cost of discipleship, which makes sense into why they are here, and sure. especially Luke's within the context of Luke's, Luke's edginess. Yeah, so, yeah, right. yeah. Thanks. Thank you. Hi, friends. We're back, and we're going to turn to the Reformers, and we're going to take a look especially at what Calvin had to say about this passage. Yes, I went into Calvin's commentaries today, and I, I want to point out um, that Calvin put this into two completely different sections because he's trying to align it. He's trying to harmonize it with Matthew. So he's actually kind of putting it more into Matthew's kind of chronology, and so these aren't even together. Which which is not surprising because that's kind of typical of what happened with people who were trying to harmonize the Synoptic Absolutely. Gospels. They followed Matthew's, that, because Matthew was not only the first gospel in this canon that was considered to be the the the, the, the first, uh, not only in terms of the sequence of writing, right. but also it was the primary right. gospel and the others were secondary. They're all secondary. You know, they, well, they were following Matthew. And that's, of course, what 
it's still first in yeah. ours, you know, and yeah. I always think we changed the order since we know Mark is older, but that's an interesting study actually, because if you look at the manuscripts and the collections of, of, of gospels, mm-hmm. that there, there are several different orders of, of the gospels in, in the actual manuscripts. I, I'm not surprised yeah. actually. Yeah. yeah. I'm not surprised at all. And yet here it's become, you know, when my kiddos learn mm-hmm. the gospels, it's Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. I mean, they right. have that, like right. that is an immovable reality. Well, I think I think the 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 real variation is where you place Mark, John, and and Mark, Luke, and John. I think Matthew is always Matthew's first. still always first. Still, <laughs> yeah, I think still. so. Interesting but point. And it's been a while since I've taken a look at that, so I'm going drawing on my memory here. But you know, when I talk to to folks, even today, when they are recounting scripture, it often is a Matthew version. For example, the Beatitudes, they don't even know about Luke's sermon on the plain. It that's where it is. That's the you know, that's their their vision, unless they're going to, of course, the the infant stories. Right. Which are only in Luke. So this it is an interesting space yep. that still has come down to us. Yep. I, I think it still impacts us today. Anyway, this is divided <laughs> into these two sections. So I'm gonna talk a little bit more about Calvin's exegesis later with with Alan, um, but uh, I wanted to talk first of all about the first section of of our reading here about this relationship between the Jews and Samaritans, and um, there's this. It clearly, you know, he is as aware as we are that the Jews and Samaritans are are arch enemies, if you will. Um, and he he he's he he calls look this is led this to this division bickering among people and he goes further to emphasize in this that this is in contrast to a jesus who is focused on jerusalem so um that there's this jesus who is in other words it's jesus who through the holy spirit is focused on jerusalem that is um is 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 focused on if you will the higher things Instead of this bickering that's going on between human beings, so I, there's set set with with if Calvin in my reading of him is this kind of like Jesus is kind of done with this bickering of, of people that there's more important work to be done. Well, of. you see that you see that in Jesus' encounter with the woman at the well in Samaria because you know this this um, antipathy between um, the Jews and the Samaritans really goes back to the hard feelings between the northern kingdom of Israel yes. and the southern kingdom of Judah and you know the fact that the northern kingdom set up a rival temple yeah, in, exactly. in Samaria exactly you know and yeah. a lot of people think it was well it was the Samaritans who had become intermingled under the reign of Assyria that that's where they went astray well no it was before that before it's, that you know mm-hmm. it's when when the when the kingdoms divided um, the king the northern king set up mm-hmm. their own temple and um, it's kind of an example of the fact that we, we tend to be have the most bitter feelings toward the ones the ones exactly. who are the most who are the closest exactly. to our position but but I think Jesus here, at least Calvin's point is, is that Jesus has more important things mm-hmm. to do than to be caught up with this continued mm-hmm. bickering. Yeah. Um, and he draw, as I said, he draws this out. And I think it reflects Calvin's kind of concept of total depravity. I really do. I think we see, I mean, I think we see this theological premise coming in here with, yeah, these people need to these people really need to be following Jesus. These people need to really understand who the Savior is. So they reject him because of their depravity. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. They're Ex- unable to receive the, him. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and then in that next verse where James and John want to destroy the Samaritans, <laughs> right? Uh, he, 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 and he does his good exegesis there and going back and noting that this is this whole relationship um, um, with Elijah. And... Uh, um, recounted the same one that Alan told us about. But in Calvin's interpretation, it's that James and John don't know the Holy Spirit. They're kind of returning to these these human things. Um, and this the Holy Spirit has different plans because the Holy Spirit is about people and saving people. Mm-hmm. And so I thought that was really interesting. Well, too. and you know, the thought occurs to me, I mean, Calvin could be making a historical argument here because James and John, uh, along with the rest of the 12, have not received the Holy Spirit yet, right? I mean, That's Jesus, true. Jesus That's grants true. them the Spirit later. That That is very, very true. Jesus grants them that later. And that was his point was they just, part of it's that they don't, they don't get it, but they don't, 
there may be a reason they don't get it, right? Well, so. and, you know, even going back to Augustine, I mean, that was one of the fundamental bibl- principles of biblical interpretation was you have to interpret the Bible with the help of the, with the aid yeah, of the Holy Spirit. Exactly, exactly, yeah. exactly, exactly. So, um, in other words, despite our, in, in terms of our context, despite our knowledge of Scripture, we must understand it within the context of the Spirit and God's. As Calvin says, our zeal must be guided by the Holy Spirit. Um, and the spirit will remove the filth of the flesh. <laughs> Pretty heavy. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I don't know that I would use quite that way no, of describing human either, depravity. But we'll talk more about this in a, in, in a minute as we move to part two. Sure. Um, and of course, in part two, um, Calvin is um, drawing a difference between the godly commands and the earthly commands and showing mm. his followers that they must be willing to put their human call aside mm. in order to follow him. And I think I think here, actually, we're seeing a relationship that he does not put together um, within these two passages. Um, although, again, Calvin didn't wasn't looking at it that way. Right. Um, but I think... It's important here because then he goes into this whole thing about the first disciple would be disciple who he says is a scribe. So he's assuming mm-hmm. the Ma- the Matthew's language here, and um, this because is, he's harmonizing because Luke and he's Matthew. harmonizing, yeah. and um, so his whole exegesis of this passion has to do with well, really how the scribe is. Um, um, lazy and and how being a scribe um, means that he doesn't have the the fortitude to follow because he's used to this kind of cushy lifestyle, and it just doesn't it doesn't right. hold any weight honestly right. when you're doing looking at Luke and so you know I think this is one of the challenges that we have when we when we're looking at Calvin and we tend to want to elevate him above where he is and he is definitely a product of his time so in some ways you know he's looking at the old testament he's looking at this is looking at how this 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 section from second kings mm-hmm. is impacting today and this is really good exegesis. he's great at interpreting the bible in light yeah, of scripture right but then <laughs> he takes it and he's like and obviously this is one big story about right. jesus and so we need to put it all together and misses he misses the author's um unique lens he misses audience for each one he misses all these things mm-hmm. that i think make that make our scripture so much richer and the experience of of being a biblical scholar even richer. Yeah. And that's all gone because yeah. he's got to make it one story. Well, and you know, it was like this this you know, one biography of Jesus that comes out of the Gospels that becomes then sort of a, 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 a you know, the story of Jesus for all times and all places. Right. But but the it's the historical rootedness of the original of uh, accounts that makes the scriptures come to life mm-hmm. for us. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It reminded me of there's that that book of God out there where they try to try to make this whole story that's 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 like loosely related to scripture, but it isn't scripture. But I know how many people read that instead of scripture. The oh. Bible is a novel. Yep. Yep. Yeah, because it's that same it's that same early modern attempt to try to write sort of a universal story of the church that yep, is true yep. for all places exactly. and all times. Exactly. And you know, I'll have people that will say, "Oh, Pastor Christine, you have to read this. This is so and because it's simplified." And they're trying mm-hmm. they're trying to create this unified one storyness about it and and yet it it takes away all the depth. Well, yeah, you see you see from the way Calvin handles the synoptic gospels that he kind of flattens them out. He flattens them out exactly, and it just really takes away from all that, all that, that is there. When I taught know? in seminary, I used to I used to liken the um, synoptic or the the gospel tradition, all four gospels, to having a. 3D full living color image of Jesus, as opposed to a harmonized version, is mm-hmm. sort of a flat two dimensional black and white. You right. know, image of Jesus, right, right, and and you miss just the the hues and the and the the different uh, lighting, and it's it's it, another analogy would be to like take a take a gem and turn it in different ways mm-hmm. and see how it reflects the light in different ways, mm-hmm. and you know when you have these four gospels, you know there are a lot of people who don't like having four gospels because they don't tell exactly the same story, and that right. becomes a problem for people. Well, because 
there's this idea that there's this just one clear truth in right. the Bible, this big T right. truth that they can pull out right. when they pick out any individual element and take it out of context, and it's just a huge problem. Um, which, as whereas you know, the, having four gospels that 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 look at Jesus from different perspectives ensures that that the message about Jesus speaks to people of all places in all times, mm-hmm. in all cultures, you know, and, and it ensures that sort of universality of scripture. And it, it really accomplishes what some of these folks are trying to accomplish. And they're really kind of not accomplishing it because what they're inevitably going to do is they're going to write a story of Jesus or a story of the Bible from their point of view. And they're going to just kind of nail it down right. in that kind of context. Right. And that really is the opposite of the, the universality of scripture. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. So, I guess while we have given Calvin quite a bit of praise in our uh, in our podcast here, which I think is fair, I think there are people that have decided they don't like him, and I think he's a really uh, fine, he was clearly ahead of his time in some ways, really yeah. fine theologian and biblical scholar of his time. Mm-hmm. But you also have to realize that it's if you go back to where Calvin is, and I know we we both have talked, we know churches that do this, we know that 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 kind of elevate this as this one true interpretation, you are, you're stuck back in the early mm. modern period and you don't want to do that because we don't live in the early modern no, period don't. anymore. So yeah, for some people, you know, Calvin is the theologian of the reformed church and mm-hmm. that's it. You and just go it. back to Calvin and you know, that doesn't really work. <laughs> it doesn't, it doesn't work at all. <laughs> I might add, a few of them think it's Calvin, but then they go on to moving beyond Calvin to <laughs> right. Calvinism, and it's right. a complete disaster. And right. you completely, you have not only limited yourself to early the early modern tradition, but then you even spin off away from what Calvin actually would say was that mm-hmm. we need to continue to reform. So, <laughs> well, because because the Calvinism of of the day. Um, simplified Calvin's teachings uh-huh. and certainly doesn't do justice to the depth and variety of Calvin's views exactly. as expressed in the commentaries. Exactly, exactly. So that was a, anyway, that was kind of a fun um, a fun thing to run into, right? It's just this kind of, whoa, <laughs> this, doesn't, this doesn't work. But um, anyway, um, I do want to move on in this part to um, a concept in this early modern era that impacts our worldview of the re, our reformers, and this surrounds the human condition. And we've talked about this some before, but I, I want to um, go a little bit into the challenges of Calvin regarding the flesh. And of course, um, this really has to do, I kind of went into his idea of total depravity, but human beings are corrupted, right? They are fallen, they are sinful. Um, but when we read this, and we read Calvin, it seems really harsh by our modern standards. We don't really think that way. We don't live in our bodies feeling they're harsh and, and, and wrong and, and such. And I think you have to put him in his context. And I have talked about this aspects of the physical and spiritual world before as the spiritual world being pure and then the human world being corrupt. Um, and this was formed in, a very, in the early church and the attitudes about the flesh that led to the monastic traditions, the scourging of the flesh, etc. This idea that your best chance was to avoid things of the flesh, like um, and 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 even even um, bodily concerns and or, or concerns of the of the day, so that you could be focusing above, and that was higher and closer to God. We've talked about that before, right. but prior to Calvin's life, we have the, the Italian Renaissance. Um, and we are impacted by this new enlightened view of the flesh, the celebration of creation, celebration of human, humankind, um, and, and a belief that, that bodies aren't indeed all evil. And so we see this in that Renaissance art that we are so familiar with. We see this in Michelangelo. We see this in um, um, Da Vinci. We see this in Tintoretto. We see this in all of our main Renaissance artists, the celebration of, of the flesh. We see um, really, really fine efforts to make the bodies 
with correct proportions mm-hmm. and to um, make them beautiful and to um, make them look like us and to, and to pull at our heartstrings as we see the humanity in these images. So we have this whole different kind of development of how we think of, of, of human beings that comes out of there. And, and we'll even, as you well know, put them in naked form or nearly naked form. I mean, obviously we have David, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and, all of a sudden, what was considered to be something we couldn't even talk about or, or mention, all of a sudden is being beautiful. Mm-hmm. Uh, I had a professor that said it this way. We went from um, naked to nude. Ah, you know? interesting. And, and what a difference in your mind is from this, right. this harshness of nakedness versus the nude has the sensuality with it. Well, and from the biblical perspective, at least the Hebrew Bible perspective, nakedness, you know, to see someone in their nakedness was, you know, just uh, very much offensive and, right. and very much taboo. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So our reformers are sharing this kind of mixed space of the created world. It's good, but fallen. Um, and it does, in, in their world, like as we know in Calvin, the, the created physical world isn't, bad i mean it's it's good creation but it's fallen and so um as i as i put it there there's at least in calvin an emphasis that your good created being is fully corrupted (laughs) (laughs) and you have to have the holy spirit in order to um, be in this created body in grace and we see this in a passage today um and um I, I think we see it in, in today mm-hmm. um, in, in, in terms of um, all these all these different pieces that we're weaving in and out of with the, the Samaritans and their, their busyness and yet Jesus going to save humanity. Mm-hmm. I, I think we see it also in those people that are being called later on. I really do. I think we see it in there. You're so caught up with all of this stuff, you're not paying attention to what it really means to to, to, to save to save humanity has to mean we have to shift what our focus is. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, this living into the created order is partly why we get this increased emphasis on good, godly living amongst people who are now supposedly proficient in the Bible. Remember, we have all this Bible reading. <laughs> right. And so, and all these people that are now being encouraged not to, not to um, give up their families and not to move into monasteries, but rather to, um, to live into families. And there's this renewed emphasis on good living of the good creation um, as God has made you to be and, and live into these bodies you're given. There's a renewed emphasis on the Ten Commandments, shifts how we go about life, uh, family and marriage, clean living, care for the poor, the things that, that Calvin would emphasize in Geneva. Um, and the idea is to celebrate creation, um, but limit those things that lead to corrupt behavior and, and that emphasize the fall. Um, and there's, there is a renaissance renewal for appreciation of the body, for creation itself. And, of course, there are renaissance art- artists who begin to show human emotion and perfect bodies in the north, in what we call the northern renaissance. And it will take us there where we see these um, northern renaissance artists, the we might say the Dutch masters fall into this space in the 17th century, where we get the celebration of humanity, of people doing just their everyday things. And they're in these, in these very, um, they're covered up in, 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 in clothes that are, or just decent clothes. This is where the Protestant work ethic is going to come from as well. And it's, um, it's really a, a celebration of, of the simpleness of human life, mm. of, of, yeah. of, of, of how we're meant to live together in, in community. So you get this. You still get the beautiful, the beautiful faces and the, and, and, and the bodies doing things in motion. But now it's in service of God in this kind of, pure way and that's what we see them really depicting so often Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, i think it'd be interesting for us to discuss maybe in our last segment you know when i when i read this i read a, a kind of christian or christendom moralism that took over 
in that time and really defined what it meant to be a Christian for a long time and still does for a lot of people. And whether or not that really does justice to what Jesus is saying when he says, you know, you follow the kingdom of God. Mm, Interesting point. I think that is a good place to end our conversation today. So let's, um, we'll come back and we'll talk about that. Thanks. Thanks. Hi, everybody. We're back. And as I, as we said, we're going to talk a little bit about you know, what really is the cost of discipleship? And, and in the, in the context of, of this passage, um, um, what it means, but also what it means today. And, you know, we talked a little bit about, does that mean this kind of clean living? Does that mean going to church every Sunday and wearing modest clothes and um, giving to the poor? And at least a lot of people think that. I think they still think that today. And yet I'm I think both Alan and I are wondering if, if that definition is, is really holds up to what Jesus expected. Yeah. And I want to, I thought I would tell a story. Um, um, some of you know my background. I taught at a Southern Baptist seminary in Fort Worth, Texas, Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary uh, for nine years. And um part one of the reasons why I left that position was because I just was growing. I had a crisis. I had a growing crisis of conscience about serving in that context. I just didn't feel like it was right. But the, the final uh, straw, so to speak for me was that they amended. We had a faith statement that we had to sign. It was called the Baptist faith and message. And we had to sign it. And when I, when I first was employed there, um, it was explained to me that basically you're agreeing to teach within these general parameters. You don't have to agree with every single statement because that was, that was the way the statement was framed. There was a preface that basically couched this statement of faith in terms of everyone has a right to, to, to make their own statement of faith and that the, the Bible was the ultimate authority. And so um, we had freedom to, to engage the Baptist faith and message and to perhaps even critique it if we, if we felt led to. Um, by the time I came to resign, that was no longer the case. We had a we had a, a fundamentalist takeover in the in the denomination, and and the boards of trustees of all the agencies were 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 populated by these very much right wing conservatives who were very bi- much biblical literalists and and um, undoubtedly men. Uh, and, <laughs> yes, yes, they were men. And but the men were not the only biblical literalist in the Baptist world. I'm sure that's true. That's true. Yeah. Yeah. But the leadership. Yeah. And so um, the Southern Baptist Convention meets every year, and in 1998 they approved an addition to the Baptist Faith and Message on the family, and they proceeded to line out this very hierarchical understanding of the family, where the husband is the head of the household, the breadwinner, the provider. The wife is the one who stays home and nurtures the next generation. Um, and, um, you know, in fact, one commentator called it the June Cleaver approach to uh, motherhood and womanhood. And, you know, my view of what, what especially what Paul was teaching about, about um, marriage in Ephesians chapter 5 is that you have to understand everything Paul says about wives submitting to husbands and husbands loving their wives in light of a, a statement he makes in Ephesians 5.21, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. So it's a mutual thing. Mm-hmm. It's not just a hierarchy. And, you know, in that kind of setting, it became clear to me that every time I taught Ephesians every year, it would be, I would be contradicting the Baptist faith and message. And it was just one of those, it was the breaking point for me. Mm-hmm. I had several colleagues who stayed on, and one of them, a good friend of mine, was an ethics professor. He wrote a nine-page sort of disclaimer <laughs> to go with his signing of this addition to the Baptist faith and message, where he basically outlined the fact that because of the situation in the New Testament, the nuclear family was not the ideal right. in the New Testament. It's in true. the New Testament, the family was the new community of faith that was created around the commitment to follow Christ and the commitment mm-hmm. to the kingdom of God. And that was something that, you know, um, 
you know, people were made to leave their families. Right. Not that they necessarily chose to. They were forced to leave their families and to choose their faith over their families. Right. Just because of the various cultural settings in Judaism or even in the Greco-Roman world, um, the Greco-Roman polytheism of the day was woven into even the trade guilds. And so if you were a certain craftsman, you had a patron god and you had to sacrifice to this god. And so, you know, again... They're, they were put in a position right. of choosing choosing either their families or their faith. And, 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 you know, there are some places in the world where that's still true today. Yes, now, that's true. Now, we live in a country where that's not the case. Right. And, and, you know, I think this sort of good Christendom moralism, this Protestant ethic, uh, became, you know, I mean, you know, Calvin's emphasis on families and marriage, clean right. living, care for the poor, obeying the Ten Commandments, you know, celebrating creation, but restricting the things that lead to corrupt right. behavior. Right. You know, I mean, that is the assumption that most people in our churches uh, have today. As long as I'm a member of a church and do these things, then I'm good. But I see very little discipleship right in our churches i agree and and so you know i think i think this passage really um, pushes us all beyond what we would consider to be sort of the basic christian moralism that we all kind of inherited in this culture we inherit it and what's what's interesting too you have to go a little bit back into the 16th century to realize that the family was put down as compared right. to really what was a true dedication, which was joining some type of uh, religious order. Mm-hmm. And so monastic this, vows. Yeah. So yeah. It, in a way, it elevated the family beyond where it was, um, which was. <laughs> kind of a necessary evil but certainly oh, I think not so. the ideal well i would i wouldn't say it was an evil i would say i would say you know yay to the renaissance rediscovery of creation is good and yay right. to the reformation emphasis on yeah family is good right exactly exactly so you know there was a there was a shift there that is not the case today if you will in terms of um, that the family has been is is still elevated, right? And and mm-hmm. in particular, this is, this is how we live today. There's not this sense that, well, maybe in Roman Catholic circles, but certainly not in Protestant circles, that you know, going and joining a monastery is the no. better choice. No. But this no. really was this was your a sign of your dedication sure. to Christ was to live that way. So, yeah. So now we have this kind of um, 16th century idea that's kind of stamped itself as the mm-hmm. idea today yeah mm-hmm. and it makes people who aren't defined in those specific ways feel like outsiders when this happens mm-hmm. you know sure. what happens with what happens with the family where where there's a divorce what happens right. if there's a single parent what happens if a spouse dies what happens if um whatever situation it is if it's not this kind of nuclear family well and you know i mean uh, you know in my day it was always i feel called to be a missionary you know there are some callings that take you uh, to places where unfortunately you you don't have as much interaction with your family as you'd like to have you know it's not it's not that you're rejecting family that is something right, evil. Right. It's not that you're turning your back on family. You still love your family, but but your right. calling to follow Christ right. may take you to a place where you, you know you're not going to have as much right. interaction with your family right. as you'd like to have. Right. Yeah, I, you're absolutely right. And there is I think there's a lot of challenges there. You know, it's 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 to what extent? I mean, I think this is a huge question, and I, I I don't know how to answer it well. But where you're calling, you're calling to be a disciple of Christ, trying to do what God has called you to do in the world, or are you call, called to stay home and take care of mm-hmm. a parent, a sick parent? Is that your calling? And I know people that will say, "Oh, I can't go about this call in my life because I have to stay home and take care of this person." And I've seen it to the point of that there's actually almost a complete. Um, disruption of of normal living when Mm -hmm. that happens because all the focus ends up going on this one person and um, all the family's energy and 
all the ways that are keeping them from really living into Christ's call in their life because it becomes a crutch and an excuse for I not I I see it with I see it with families when their kids are in high school. You know, mm-hmm. everything revolves around whatever the kid is doing in high school and and that takes priority even over any kind of participation in church events. Yeah, true. And you know, I mean I mean I have a 90-year-old father who's in a, a care facility in, in Dickinson, Texas, near Houston. Mm-hmm. And, um, um, you know, uh, yeah, yeah, ideally, I, I would like to be there to be able to take care of him more than I can. Unfortunately, my calling has brought me to a place where that's not possible. Right. And I'm, right. I'm grateful that there are other family members there who can take care of him. Right. But, um, you know, so I hear what you're saying. I mean, that it's a tension and it's, it's a, and it's a, a tension there. and it's a, and I think, you know, as I've mentioned this before, I think when we come to these kinds of really hard statements of Jesus in the new Testament, the, the tendency is to want to kind of come up with an explanation to relieve the tension. I don't think that's. I don't, I don't think, think that's, that's the point. I think I the point think so is either. let the tension stand because the tension is there to do its work in our in our lives right. to to draw us into deeper discipleship uh, and into a deeper commitment of following Christ's and, kingdom. And I think part of that is in in that challenge, right? Mm-hmm. In that challenge of right. of asking those questions and really getting us to dig deep about what we're called to do in this Well, world. and you know, I'm grateful that I have other family members who are called, who feel called to take care of my father in this time of his life, Yeah, you know, because I can't be there to do that. So I, I think, I'm not saying my call is any better than theirs. I Their call no, is just as important. No, it's not any better, just as important, but yeah. I think it makes us, and, and that's when I, I do, Alan just said what I wanted to say. I don't want to sound like that's not a calling, because right. it certainly is, yeah. but I think we have to, to listen for the Holy Spirit and how mm-hmm. the Holy Spirit's calling us. And it may not be what someone else tells you it right. should be. Right. It, it is not what society tells you it right. is necessarily. Right. It is what God's calling you to we do. We have to be intentional about listening yeah. for what the way God is calling us to follow Christ. Exactly. Yeah. 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 I think that's a good place to end our discussion. Sounds good. Yeah, thanks, thanks Christy. That's our podcast for today. If you heard something that was helpful to you, please subscribe to our podcast and tell your friends about us. It's our hope and prayer that our time together might bear fruit in your ministry as you build up the body of Christ. We hope you'll tune in next week. And in the meantime, let's keep serving each other as we together listen listen for for the the word. word.